Do you like your history haunted? Then you'll love Macabre London, a podcast hosted by me, Nikki Druce. Every fortnight we uncover one of the forgotten stories of London's bloody past and get to the bottom of some more well-known gruesome tales. We've covered witchcraft in the form of the last witch trial held in World War II, found out what it was like to be a hangman in the Victorian times, and even dipped our toe into the paranormal by uncovering what really happened at the infamous Enfield haunting. So if you're interested in learning the gory, spooky and eerie history of the UK's capital city, then check out the show. You can find us on the Apple Podcasts app, Acast and all other podcast providers by searching for Macabre London. That's M-A- C-A-B-R-E, London. In 2014, a social worker attempted to make contact with a doctor in a homeless shelter where a little girl named Relisha lived with her family. The doctor claimed to be treating Relisha for an unspecified neurological condition that caused her to miss a lot of school. But when the social worker arrived at the homeless shelter... She learned this doctor was actually a janitor, and Relisha's mother couldn't remember the last time she had seen her daughter. In four years, Relisha's mother, stepfather, grandmother, and teachers have all come under fire, as has the Department of Child and Family Services and the shelter where Relisha lived. But none of this finger-pointing has led to the whereabouts of Relisha. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me today is Allie. How are you, Allie? I am getting over the flu. I'm the only person I think that could be extremely healthy all winter, and just the hint of summer, I get the flu. But I'm doing okay. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. I'm sure our listeners with very sensitive ears can probably hear my voice. I'm getting over a cold at the end of summer here. And so we're both a little under the weather, but we're excited to be recording and getting this episode out. Another thing I'm looking forward to is we have a Kansas City meetup on September 27th. It's a Thursday, and it's at the Westport Flea Market, which those who are not from Kansas City, that's actually a restaurant. And it's at 7 p.m. We have a bunch of podcasters coming, local ones and ones from far away, including Josh from Our Americana and the Karen and Ellen Letters. Jess and Haley from Murder Road Trip will be here. There's just a bunch of podcasters coming, and I hope we see a lot of listeners as well. There's more information on this across our social media accounts. And then I have a couple shout-outs to do. I know we like to get in the story pretty quickly, but I just want to send a shout-out to one of our listeners, Amy, and her husband. Her husband, William, launched a murder mystery party company, and he writes the stories and does the artwork. I've bought murder mystery party packages like this before, And they've never looked as nicely designed as these do. I love what he's doing and just wanted to send them a shout out and a shout out to their company. It's called MurderHappens.com. So go check it out if you're interested in hosting a murder mystery party. And two huge thank you shout outs to Andrew and Megan for their help with this episode. Andrew works with homeless youth, and he was able to give me some information on what this looks like from the ground. And Megan helped by pulling information on homelessness in Washington, D.C. at the time Relisha was living in a shelter there. And I appreciate all the help because when I started looking into this case, I realized it is very much about what led to Relisha's vulnerability 
and the sobering fact that there are many children around the world who are facing these same risks. And we're going to cover this story from the start, but that means going back nearly two decades before Relisha was even born, because we need to get some context. You will hear this story and you will want to scream at her mother, and we get it 100%. But we need to set this up a little with Relisha's mother's background. Shamika Young gave a long interview to the Washington Post that we will link to. But the basic idea of this article is that they walked through Shamika's life and her foster care record. When Shamika was nine, she and her mother, her mother had drug issues, and her siblings were all living in a homeless shelter when her mother was arrested. Shamika was placed with her grandmother for a short time and then moved to a foster home. Her mother's parental rights were terminated within a few years. Though free for adoption, Shamika bounced from foster home to group home and even to a mental institution until she aged out of the system. We're talking months here, not years, spent in a home before she was moved on again. She was usually moved because she was angry and violent and more than the family could handle. She told them that she had voices in her head telling her to do bad things. She would throw these horrible tantrums. She would make threats. This is clearly a child with significant special needs. Once she was placed in a foster home with her brother, and the family adopted him, but they didn't adopt Shamika. Even though they were experienced foster parents who specialised in traumatised children, Shamika needed an inpatient treatment and the family took her to a mental health crisis centre when she had a meltdown. She went back to the foster home after treatment, which she said was mostly restraint and medication. But when the family had to take her back to the crisis centre after another incident, the state placed her in the institution. She was only 12 years old. And this is in line with the information Megan had sent us about homelessness in children. In the general population, 12% of children have need of a psychological evaluation. 12%. For homeless children, the rates are two to four times higher. So we're talking upwards of 40%. Which is a large percentage when you're talking about these children that have great needs anyway. Exactly. So we can see that any child who is homeless is at a greater risk for mental health issues. And that's not counting everything else, which we're going to get into. And like I said, we're going to link to the full Washington Post article about Shamika's childhood because it is an incredible piece of original reporting. And you have to just picture a child going through what Shamika did for a little while before you start feeling some empathy for her. Now, I don't think it goes so far as to be an excuse for anything that comes after, but I think it gives us a context for the person who is going to be raising Relisha. I don't think you can look at what's to come without knowing what happened before, because I think it does come into play. It plays a huge role. And Shamika left foster care at 18. And for those who don't know, foster care isn't like they boot you out once you turn 18. You can actually stay in care until you're 21. And there are some resources available. But a lot of young adults, particularly those with bad experiences in foster care, 
they opt to leave at 18 because staying until you're 21 is optional. And this is what Shamika did. She basically signed herself out of foster care. A year and a half after that, Relisha was born in October 2005. Relisha's father, Irving, was working at Catholic Charities when he met Shamika, who I assume was there for some type of assistance. Irving was in his mid-30s, and he had a previous conviction for involuntary manslaughter. In 1992, Irving was a 23-year-old father to twin girls. The girls were a year and a half old, and one of them died as a result of child abuse. The surviving twin also showed signs of serious abuse and neglect. Irving was initially charged with first-degree murder, but convicted of involuntary manslaughter, and he spent 10 years in prison. Then a year and a half after Relisha was born, so while she was still quite small, her brother was born. And shortly after that, we see the first contact with the Department of Family and Child Services. The specifics of these visits are usually confidential, but the Washington Post reported on files that they said were, quote, read to them. This first visit noted that the home did not have enough food for the children and that Relisha had some injuries that were consistent with abuse, but there was no evidence of how she sustained these injuries. When she was two years old, Relisha's parents split up. Her father saw her and her brother sporadically, and he even filed to get custody twice, though he never made the court dates. With his past, custody would have been an uphill battle at best. The next few years of Relisha's life would be marked with even more instability. Her mother met Antonio Wheeler and had two more sons. They moved from apartment to apartment, staying 12 months or less before breaking the lease or being evicted and going somewhere else. In April of 2010, one of the younger boys had an unspecified surgery. It's unclear exactly how DCFS was tipped off because the complaint was for medical neglect after he wasn't getting the follow-up care he was supposed to get. So it is possible it was the doctor who called them. While in the home, DCFS found it was a complete mess, but this was beyond the normal messy house you would see with a bunch of young kids. There was trash and cigarette butts being just tossed on the floors throughout the apartment and they weren't picked up. The house was more dirty than just messy. This was more of a concern because Relisha had asthma. Smoking in the home and not cleaning enough could trigger her asthma if she is prone to environmental triggers. An unnamed relative told the Washington Post that there was ongoing supervision by social services at some point, that they would come by once or twice a week to check in. They would make sure the apartment was clean enough and that the children were being fed. In spite of this rough upbringing, Relisha had been described as very sweet and smart and just a loving little girl who wanted attention and love. And she got it because her teachers and the people working with her at after-school programs said she was the type of child who just found her way into people's hearts. Her grandmother said that people who met Relisha and her brothers just instantly fell in love with all four of them. After spending a few months living in a motel, the family moved in 2012 into the D.C. General Family Homeless Shelter. And it was at this shelter that the family met Khalil Tatum, 
who worked there as a custodian. Tatum took a special interest in Shamika's children on the whole at first, all four of them. The rule at the shelter was that the children could not go down to eat at mealtimes unless they had a parent with them. And Tatum saw the kids come in for breakfast without Shamika or Antonia with them and be turned away. So they weren't getting breakfast if Shamika or Antonio didn't wake up in time or wouldn't go down with them. So Tatum started making sure all four kids got food for breakfast regardless. Now, this sounds very nice of him, but anyone familiar with this case knows this isn't where it stopped. Tatum eventually singled out Relisha for extra attention. He would buy her gifts. He would take her places outside of the shelter. And Relisha's entire family, which was Shamika, her stepdad, her grandmother, her stepdad's mother, her aunt, no one had any red flags with Tatum. They came to view him and even tell people that he was a godfather for Relisha. And Tatum had a granddaughter, so he would often invite Relisha places along with his granddaughter. Relisha would come home talking about having fun playing with the granddaughter, so we at least know there was a granddaughter, and that wasn't a ruse. To a large degree, the family was happy that Tatum was taking her places, even though this was 100% against shelter policy. No employees could have relationships of any kind with residents. I'm not sure the family knew this rule, but surely Tatum did, and they did trust him. They couldn't afford these extra outings. They couldn't afford these toys that he was buying. So it seemed like a good situation for Relisha. Now, Relisha hated the shelter, and I mean she hated it. It was noisy and dirty. DC General Family Shelter was an old hospital that was converted into a shelter in 2001. It was only meant to be a seasonal shelter, but eventually became a year-round one in 2008, and it served families, as many as 280 entire families were living there at its peak. Currently, in 2018, 170 families live there. One of the neighbouring buildings is a methadone clinic. There is a jail nearby. There have been reports of bug and rodent infestations as well as mould, which surely wasn't good for a little girl with asthma like Relisha. But there were a few options. Washington, D.C. had a homelessness crisis, and it still does, in fact. In 2014, the U.S. national rate for homelessness was 18.3 people per 10,000. But in D.C., it was 120 people. So we're talking six times the national average. That is the highest homelessness rate in the U.S. by more than double. When Relisha would stay with extended family members, which included Shamika's mother, Melissa, who was back in her life at this point, Relisha would claim her asthma was bothering her just to get one more night away from the shelter. Tatum was another person who could take the little girl away from all of this for a little while. And with three younger children, I'm sure Shamika didn't mind having one less child in a cramped room. Relisha also seemed to prefer Tatum to the shelter. Her aunt told the Washington Post that Relisha would call Tatum and ask him to come and get her. And when he would come get her, he would pick her up and drop her off exactly when he said he would. I chatted with a listener of ours, Andrew, who I met at the Canadian True Crime podcast event. 
and he works with homeless youth, and this is really in line with what he told me he sees. These kids often feel like they don't have anyone they can rely on. They're lonely, and they're often in need of adult role models. So they gravitate towards people who show them love and affection, like Tatum showed Relisha. When she was with her mom, she had three little brothers that have been described as high energy. When she was with extended family, she had a bunch of younger cousins around. So Tatum gave her special attention that can be hard to get when you're the sweet, quiet kid in a room full of needier kids. So while the family took Relisha being happy to go with Tatum as a sign that everything was fine, it does not necessarily indicate this. We do not know that Tatum abused Relisha. We don't. But the suspicion is there, and I don't think Relisha not being afraid to go with him is a sign that he wasn't abusing her. This is a very complicated situation with a little girl who didn't have great options of where to go. Aside from any issues that may or may not have been there with Tatum, teachers and people running the after-school programs, they were concerned about Relisha's environment. They really did try to help her. They would have clean clothes for her at school for the day she showed up in dirty clothes. One teacher took her to the bathrooms at the start of school mornings to wash up and cover the basic hygiene. It is believed that calls were placed to social services during this time, but it's important to note that this situation is something teachers who work in districts with children living this far below the poverty line, they see with some frequency, even from homes with loving parents. It's hard to keep your child in clean clothes when you don't have money for the laundromat. It's hard to get them to brush their teeth and hair when the power is cut due to an overdue bill and the school bus comes before the sun comes up so that the kids can get to school in time for that free breakfast. And when it's a situation where their parents grew up similarly, this is their norm. Habits like regular baths and hair care weren't taught to them, so it's not passed on to their children. I think we can say there was enough evidence that Relisha was experiencing some level of neglect, period. But when I see people point the finger at the teachers who saw this and, quote, did nothing, I realize what a privilege it is to believe that kids coming to school unwashed and with dirty clothes is shocking. The truth is, it's reality for a lot of these kids who come from homes that are doing the best they can with what they have. And these teachers not only see it every day, but they also have to teach these kids who don't know where they're going to be living next month to care about the War of 1812. And while we're at it, let's test those kids and then punish the teachers for not doing good enough. But I digress. Anyway, let's get back to the story. I do find it interesting that people don't think that the teachers did anything because, I mean, reading what we've read and hearing what you hear, they did. They were making sure that she was clean and her hair was done and they were there for her. Exactly. And this expectation that teachers should be able to pick out the kid who has loving parents who don't have the means to provide them with clean clothes and good hygiene habits and the kids who are being truly neglected and abused. I don't know why we think a teacher can or should be able to discern who is who. And some will say they should just call on everybody. And we don't know that they didn't call. I'm giving the teachers a complete pass on this. When I hear 
people say everyone failed Relisha. I don't think that's true. I have watched and listened to interviews with the after school people that were working with her, her cheerleading coach in this after school program. They were all trying to help her. I don't agree with this idea that everyone failed Relisha. I think there were people who were trying to help. So away from the teachers, back to Tatum, and away from the ranting for a minute, who was Khalil Tatum? Tatum was 51 years old in 2014 when Relisha went missing. He had worked at the shelter for a few years, and he and his wife, Andrea, had an apartment not terribly far from the shelter. They had married in 1990, and it's unclear if they had children together, but we do know Andrea had children that she brought into the marriage. And from what everyone could tell, they were loving grandparents. Neighbours said they seemed like a good, solid couple, and family members say that they loved each other very much. But their life was not idyllic by any means. Andrea was battling a drug addiction for years, but she had found recovery in her 40s, and by 2014, she was clean. In their 24 years of marriage, Tatum spent around 17 of them behind bars on two different occasions for theft-related charges. The reports aren't specific about their marital issues, except to say they were having issues and Andrea was thinking of leaving Tatum. Tatum even went as far as to file for divorce in February of 2014. He noted that it was mutual and voluntary. Washington, D.C. only has two boxes to check, either mutual and voluntary or not. If mutual and voluntary, the couple has to be living separately for six months before filing. If one person contests a divorce, the separation period is one year. We don't see any indication Tatum and Andrea were living separately, but separate residence isn't always necessary to meet this requirement if you can show the court that you were pursuing separate lives. And this is something that we can't know. Andrea did have some type of relationship with another man. After all, her legal husband was in prison for most of their marriage. So perhaps they really were more roommates than husband and wife at this point. I know this probe into their marriage sounds like a pointless meander at the moment, but it will come up later. Relisha is not the only victim in our story. But let's get back to our timeline. It's November 2013 now. Relisha has lived at the D.C. family shelter with her mother, stepfather, and three brothers for a year, maybe even 18 months. Khalil Tatum had been taking Relisha out on these outings and buying her gifts. Social services will intervene again while they're in the shelter. One of Relisha's brothers had a split lip. The findings were that there was abuse and that the children weren't being properly supervised. The little boy's injuries were from supposedly being thrown on the floor and slapped in the face repeatedly. But the stories of what happened and who did it were changing repeatedly, so no charges were ever filed. And it's actually unclear if this case was ever closed or if it was still pending when Relisha went missing just four months later. And we would be remiss not to mention that just because children were left with their parents, it doesn't mean nothing was done. We don't know what type of resources were made available to Shamika and Antonio or if they were required to take a parenting class or seek therapy or anything. We don't know. 
We don't know what type of supervision was going on after this November visit, though we know there was supervision from a previous complaint at a previous time. Removing children from a home is traumatic, and we have to say that as well. And this is a deep trauma, so we need to be a little understanding on why social workers will hesitate to pull a kid from a home unless they believe the kids are in danger. So if the parents can care for their children with support or with education, that is the first choice. And again, we offer this for context, not as a defense for anyone's choices or decisions. We don't have access to all the information that social services had. So it's kind of hard for us to say yes or no, they did the right thing or not. But in general, social workers are trying to minimize trauma, not contribute to it. For what it's worth, Shamika denies she ever hit her kids. After her own childhood of abuse, she says she has chosen not to use any type of spanking discipline with her children. We don't know that that extends to her mother or to Antonio or that she's even being honest here, but that is her defense. When I read an email that Bombas Socks was interested in advertising on Insight, I looked down at my feet and, of course, I was wearing my Bombas Socks. I've been wearing them for probably 18 months, maybe even two years exclusively. And when you put them on, you will know why. Whether I'm sitting at home researching for the podcast or I'm off chasing my kids at the park or out on a hike, Bombas Socks work for me. They are like a hug around your foot. They're super soft cotton. They have a seamless toe. The footbed is reinforced, but it doesn't add any bulkiness to it. And with the blister tab protecting the back of my ankle, these socks are the only socks for me. What I love about the company is that they donate one brand new pair of socks for every pair they sell. I used to work for a nonprofit social services agency, and one of the things we were always asked for were socks. They're the number one most requested item in a homeless shelter, but you can't donate used socks, and they were hard for us to come by. So this really speaks to me. If you want to get the best socks and the only socks you will ever want to wear again, go to bombas.com slash insight. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com, and you'll get 20% off your first order. That's bombas.com slash insight and code insight. Now we are at February 2014. Tatum had filed for divorce from his wife. On February 26th, according to Relisha's grandmother, Tatum was supposed to take Relisha to a hotel for a pool party with his granddaughter. He stopped by the house to get Relisha's bathing suit, but she didn't have one. He said, no problem, he would stop at the store and buy her one. There is a huge question here on who actually gave Relisha to Tatum. Relisha's mother and grandmother both point fingers at each other. Shamika said Relisha was staying with Melissa, who was Shamika's mother, and Shamika's sister. They are the ones who gave Relisha to Tatum that day, but Melissa says no. When Tatum came by to get the bathing suit, Relisha was already with him. We only know that Tatum did not take Relisha directly from the shelter. As Charlie said earlier, it's against shelter policy for children to enter or leave the shelter without their parents. They're really not supposed to be anywhere at the shelter without their parents. They can't even be in the rooms by themselves without their parents. 
There are security guards on every floor to make sure that these rules are being followed. Tatum's co-workers seemed surprised to learn that he had any type of relationship with Shamika, Relisha or any other resident of the shelter. But other residents who had Tatum take an interest in their kids, always their daughters, they say otherwise. They said he would interact with the children and give them gifts of money in the shelter without hiding it from the other staffers. But Shamika has made the point numerous times that there was enough security at the shelter that Tatum did not take Relisha from the shelter. She would have had to have left with Shamika or Antonio. How she got from the shelter to Tatum and when, it's a matter of controversy within the family. Relisha and Tatum were caught on security footage at a Holiday Inn hotel near the shelter after 7 p.m. on that evening of February 26th. And this footage has been released, at least in part. The two of them are carrying some plastic store bags, and Tatum leads Relisha into a hotel room. She is walking on her own power. He isn't carrying her. He isn't dragging her. He's not even pulling her by the hand. From February 26th until March 1st, we don't know what happened. That information has not been released. But on March 1st, Relisha and Tatum were seen on another hotel security camera. The video, which has not been released, has been said to be of Relisha walking past a fountain in front of a day's inn, through the lobby, and into a room. It's odd to me that they released the footage from February 26th, but not March 1st, because the March 1st footage would be more helpful. It would show what she was last seen wearing. Why they released the one from days earlier, I'm not sure. And Shamika has told inconsistent stories on when she last saw Relisha. And it may have been February 26th, the day Tatum took her. But on March 1st, a video was put up on Instagram of Relisha with her brothers and her stepfather dancing. And you can hear Shamika's voice. She's the one taking the video. The room looks like it's a room at the shelter, but Shamika and her mother, Melissa, have said that it was actually taken at Melissa's apartment. And I'm under the impression that Melissa lives with Shamika's sister. So this would have Shamika with her family on March 1st, which I'm not sure how that fits into the timeline. Shamika said in an interview in 2017 that the last day she saw her daughter was a Friday in March when she took Relisha to her sister's house and took Relisha out shopping and then dropped her back off. But we know this is probably a blurry timeline. March 1st was a Saturday. The first Friday in March is March 7th, and it's very unlikely anyone saw Relisha this late. But we'll get into that later. But Shamika either saw Relisha last on Friday, February 28th, or Saturday, March 1st. It is possible Shamika took the video of Relisha and her brothers dancing on Friday, but didn't post it until the following day, March 1st. But here's what's hazy for me. When Tatum took Relisha on February, March 26, when did he bring her back to her grandmother and aunt? According to Melissa and Shamika, he must have brought her back by March 1st for that dancing video to be made. So when exactly did he return her and when did he pick her up again? There has been no indication that there was actually a pool party on February 26. 
There were some statements made that the hotel didn't have the pool, but WUSA 9 News confirmed that there was a pool. And we did go online to a booking site and you can see that hotel does have a pool. The only thing that has been released is the video of Relisha and Tatum together with no other children or adults at the hotel. Maybe there was a pool party and it's just not being reported, but if there wasn't, why did Tatum have her there? I don't even want to think about what the answer to that is. If everyone is telling the truth on the timeline, Relisha was with her grandmother until March 1st. Her mother saw her that day and even took her out of the house to shop and then Tatum somehow got her from who? Melissa and Shamika do point fingers at each other, but the truth is we don't know who actually passed Relisha to Tatum on March 1st and then he took her to another hotel. Another thing that is unclear is the last day Relisha was seen at school. There were early reports she was seen at school on March 5th and 7th and that she told a teacher she was staying with Melissa and had been sick. But it was later shown that this is incorrect and that Relisha was not seen after March 1st. We do know that Relisha was with Tatum on March 1st because of that security footage. On March 2nd, Tatum shows back up on security footage And this time, he does not have Relisha with him, and he's at a Home Depot, which is a big hardware store, buying a shovel, lime, and a box of heavy-duty 42-gallon trash bags. Obviously, this looks terrible. A tip came in that he was then seen at Kenilworth Park later that day, and police say he spent quite a bit of time there, so I assume they were looking at his cell records to figure out his movements at that point. Relisha had missed so much school by late February, even before she went missing, that Shamika had a parent-teacher conference on March 5th to talk about Relisha's attendance issues, and what I've seen reported is that she attended that. Now, Relisha had a number of excused and unexcused absences, and here we're going to have some more discrepancies between the stories the family's telling. Many of these absences were excused by a, quote, Dr. Tatum, who supposedly had Relisha under his care for some type of unspecified neurological condition. Shamika says her mother and partner were the ones who used this Dr. Tatum excuse. Shamika was in the dark. And Melissa is the one who gave the school Tatum's phone number and said she was under his care for headaches and seizures. But the Washington Post reported that officials said Shamika also told the school that Relisha was under Dr. Tatum's care. So there's, again, more finger pointing on who knew about this Dr. Tatum ruse. Relisha's family, on the whole, has spent no small amount of energy trying to distance themselves from her disappearance. Melissa told Al Jazeera America that neither of them knew Tatum was saying he was a doctor and that the school misunderstood her note, that her M in Mr. Tatum looked like a D for Dr. Tatum. But why she would write a note to the school telling them that Relisha was under the care of a janitor is beyond me. I mean, that's not an excuse for being absent. Regardless, on March 10th, the school reached out to Tatum, thinking he was Relisha's doctor, and told him he needed to provide some documentation of her ongoing health issues. He told them he would either leave it at the shelter for them or he would meet them at the shelter to go over it. Both of those are reported, but it sounds like he was supposed to meet with them. 
The next point in the timeline is unconfirmed as far as we know. Police may have used phone records to vet this information already and just haven't put it in the media. This information comes from a WUSA 9 News interview with Relisha's grandmother. Melissa said that on March 12th, she called Tatum. Relisha's tablet had some kind of issue and she was calling him to see if the tablet was still under warranty so they could get it fixed. While on the phone with him, she asked about Relisha because she hadn't seen or heard from her. She said he first said he didn't have Relisha with him, but then he said he was in Atlanta with his wife, daughter, granddaughter and Relisha for a retreat. She told him that Relisha had to be back on March 16th for a birthday party and he said he would return her then and pick up the tablet. Melissa said she called Shemeka after getting off the phone with Tatum to ask if she was aware Relisha was in Atlanta. Shemeka supposedly said that she had told Tatum not to take Relisha down there. Now, it's important to point out that Tatum was going to work at the shelter this whole time, and authorities have said he was in the area during this time period and did not travel to Atlanta. But you have to wonder how he thought he could tell Relisha's family he was in Atlanta while showing up to work at the same shelter they lived at. It's possible this conversation did not happen the way Melissa said, or it didn't happen at all. It's hard to believe he managed to go to work like normal and simply never saw any of Relisha's family. But then again, it is a large shelter, so I guess it isn't completely impossible. On March 13th, a school counselor sent a report to the Department of Child and Family Services alerting them to Relisha's excessive absences and possible educational neglect. Relisha had missed about 30 days of school, and this was a mandatory report because she actually hit the maximum allowable of unexcused absences, which means not the ones that Dr. Tatum was vouching for. As you can imagine, poor attendance for homeless children is a regular issue. A child with an ongoing illness like Dr. Tatum claimed Relisha had can get homebound services where a tutor is sent to the home. But this is a trickier situation in a shelter. And honestly, with a parent like Shamika, who may not be aware of the services available or might not be really engaged enough to seek them out and follow through on them. My guess is that the goal was to meet with Dr. Tatum, get the proper documentation about Relisha's illness, and then get the ball rolling to get Relisha what she needed so she didn't fall farther behind educationally. Relisha's brothers were, through all of this, still attending school, and the family had a doctor claiming she had an ongoing health issue. So Relisha's truancy case wasn't flagged as terribly urgent. So it wouldn't be until March 19th that authorities made contact. But in the meantime, according to Relisha's grandmother and her story about the Atlanta stuff and all the phone calls, Tatum did not bring Relisha back on March 16th as he promised. But he called on March 17th to say that he dropped her off at school. Now, March 17th was spring break. So Melissa knew that this was a lie. The school wasn't even open. But even according to her, she said she admits she did not reach out to Shamika. She didn't reach out to the police. She didn't tell anyone. So she knew Tatum told her a lie about what he did with her granddaughter, and she didn't do anything. I've seen her say in at least two interviews 
that she was in shock and wasn't thinking straight. And then she pointed out that she wasn't the only family member aware Tatum didn't return Relisha when he was supposed to, and no one called the authorities either. So again, even when the fingers pointed at Melissa, she's going to look out and say, but look, no one else did anything either. There's a lot of this in this case. So the social worker had made the arrangements to go get the documentation on Relisha's health issue from the shelter. The shelter did have a medical facility on site, so it wasn't completely odd that Relisha's doctor would be at the shelter. Tatum had agreed on the phone to this documentation, but then, of course, he left his shift early before the meeting could take place. When the social worker arrived and asked to speak to Dr. Tatum, she was told the only Tatum on staff was a custodian. His supervisor called him into the office, but he never came. The police were immediately called and the missing persons investigation finally got started. We so often see families frustrated the police aren't doing enough quickly enough when their loved one is missing, but this case was the exact opposite. Shamika didn't want an Amber Alert issued. According to her, she didn't consider Relisha missing because Relisha was with her mother and sister. But authorities say she actually told them Relisha was at a medical conference with Tatum and they had left on March 8. So we had this massive discrepancy here on what Shamika did or did not know about Relisha's location and what she told police. And there is this issue that Shamika saw her daughter last on or before March 1st, and here we are at March 19th, and Shamika has not seen or spoken to Relisha in these two and a half weeks. Early on, she claimed to have spoken to Relisha on March 17th, though this is very unlikely, and she later admitted she hadn't talked to her daughter during that time because she thought Relisha was safe and she didn't have a phone to call her mother on to check on Relisha. But this excuse falls flat. Melissa said she called Shamika while Relisha was gone and had the whole conversation about Atlanta. Even if that didn't happen, Relisha's stepfather, Antonio, posted a picture of a new phone on social media around this time, so we know there was at least one phone. You have to wonder if she didn't call either Melissa or Tatum because she knew Relisha wasn't there, which is disturbing. The alternative doesn't seem much better, that she just wasn't connected enough to Relisha to really feel her absence in those two and a half weeks. And if we went into the psychology of all that and Shemika's possible issues with attachment due to her own unstable childhood, we would be here all day. Again, Shemika's childhood give us context and some insights into her behaviour as a parent. Police started their search for Relisha that day. And the first thing they did was go to Melissa's apartment, which makes sense because that's where Shemika was at one point telling them where she was. And then the other was to try to make contact with Tatum. And they repeatedly called his cell phone, but it went straight to voicemail. And phone records would later show that March 19th, around 9.30 that evening, was the last activity on his phone. He never turned it back on. This limited their ability to track him. But a tip came in that his vehicle was parked outside of a Red Roof Inn in Oxon Hill, which is another part of D.C., It's not that far from the shelter, though. When they entered the room Tatum had booked, they found his wife, Andrea, 
face down on the bed, dead from a single gunshot wound to the head. The autopsy would show no signs of struggle. She had no bruising. Her fingernails were long and intact. There were no scratches on her body. It's believed she was killed in her sleep, and it was believed by her husband. Around 6 p.m. on the evening, Relisha was discovered missing, and the day before Andrew was found, Andrea had talked to a friend on the phone and mentioned having plans to babysit her grandchildren the next day. She was going to relax, and they go to sleep early. There was nothing in the phone call that caused her friend any alarm. But four hours after that call, even though she indicated to her friend that she was settled in for the night, Tatum and Andrea checked into this Red Roof Inn about 20 minutes from where they lived. They weren't alone, though. Three other people went in with them. Before midnight, those three people left, and none of these people were Relisha. The three people have been identified and questioned by authorities. One of the men came back to the hotel about 20 of 6 the next morning to pick Tatum up, and he said he didn't go into the room, but he did see Andrea lying on the bed. She was already dead, but he didn't know that. From his viewpoint, she could have just been sleeping. Tatum wouldn't let him come into the room. The man then drove Tatum a 12-minute drive to a local metro station. And it's not been reported, as far as I can tell, if Tatum told his friend where he was going or why he needed to be picked up when he had a vehicle with him. But he had to know at this point they were looking for him, and he obviously didn't want to risk getting caught in his truck. But authorities didn't know about these witnesses immediately on finding Andrea. So they first thought was that Tatum had Relisha and fled with her. They still believed they were looking for Tatum and Relisha together. The witnesses were identified quickly, though, because they're mentioned in the March 22nd search warrant of Tatum's electronic communications from Google. Authorities had a lead on another vehicle that Tatum may have been in, and it was found abandoned in another part of the DC metro area. Tatum was charged with his wife's murder, and an Amber Alert was issued for Alicia, even though Shemeika had initially resisted it. She was still insisting her daughter wasn't missing. There is quite a bit of controversy over this Amber Alert. Surrounding states say they did not get asked by Washington, D.C. to put out an Amber Alert in their states, while D.C. said they did. This is pretty important because Relisha had been missing three to four weeks at this point, and Washington, D.C. is a city that is only 68 square miles or 177 kilometres squared. That's a small area, and the odds Relisha had been transported out of the city were pretty decent, particularly if she was being trafficked. In the end, it was announced that D.C. never asked the other states to run the Amber Alert. There was confusion because the notification of the Amber Alert went out to other states, but without a request to actually issue their own. There really wasn't enough information at this point for them to ask, since a lot of the criteria for an Amber Alert was missing. The mother of the child was even saying that Relisha wasn't abducted. She was safe either with her mother or with Tatum. The only reason they were looking for Alicia was on their own suspicions about the entire situation. So investigators were both searching for Tatum and Relisha and trying to backtrack Tatum's movements from when he picked up Relisha from that pool party nearly a month prior. Can your workout clothes double as your outfit for a night out or even for work? 
Carbon 38 is a performance fashion site that curates brands that blur the line between workout wear and street style. These pieces transition effortlessly from the studio to the street or from your workout to your weekend. Their best-selling Takara legging is a lightweight legging with a liquid finish that makes it look like leather. So it's comfortable, breathable, lightweight, and it's totally opaque. There are four different styles. This collection has sold out three times. It has a super slimming waistband that you're never going to have to pull up. Carbon 38 Signature Collections are made of activewear fabric for performance, functionality, and fit. And they have private label designs, dresses, leggings, sports bras, and tops that are meant just as much for working out as wearing out. One of the things that makes Carbon 38 really stand out for me is that they carry items that are ideal for layering. I bought a cardigan that's super, super soft, and I can put it on over pretty much anything and dress it up. They also have gym bags that don't look like gym bags. You can walk out with it looking like an oversized purse. Carbon 38 has new arrivals daily from the top luxury performance fashion labels. Go to carbon38.com and use code SITE for 20% off your order. That's carbon38.com, promo code SITE for 20% off your purchase. Like we said, March 1st was the last time Relisha was seen with Tatum and it's on security footage from the days in. But the very next day, Tatum shows up on security footage by himself buying that shovel, trash bags and lime. On March 31st, searchers were searching Kenilworth Park. Many believed then, and honestly, some still do, that Tatum had buried Relisha somewhere at that park. The park is along the Anacostia River, so the river had to be searched as well. The search did find one body, Khalil Tatum's. Tatum was found dead in a utility shed. He apparently took his own life, and later tests would show that he used the same gun that was used in Andrea's murder. Tatum had died at least a day and a half before he was found, though it could have been several days. If anyone saw him after his friend dropped him off at that metro station, it has not been made public. The last mention I've seen of proof of life is that he accessed his Gmail account on March 21st around 3 in the morning, and he was still in the D.C. area. Relisha's grandmother, Melissa, said in an interview that this building was searched early on before March 31st and that Tatum's body was not in there. But we're not sure how reliable of a historian Melissa is here. The official search of the park lasted for a week, and it included searching nearby abandoned houses. But nothing of Relisha's was found that has been reported publicly. Obviously, we don't know everything, and this is very much an active investigation still, four years on. So authorities are surely holding back some details. The park has a recreation area with sports fields and a pool, and Tatum was found in that area of the park. But the rest of the park has trails and trees and marshes. The park totals 700 acres, and there were 100 searchers involved. Most were law enforcement, but there was a group of volunteers. The only thing suspicious found at the park was some bones, but they were determined to be animal bones. 
Even after the official search of the park was over, volunteers continued to work on searches throughout DC and made sure everyone knew Relisha was missing by posting and passing out flyers. Over the last four years, there have been additional searches for Relisha's remains. We will talk about the possibility she is still alive later, but the investigation was pointing towards Relisha being deceased at this point, so that's the context of the searches. In October 2014, a scent dog tracked to the riverbank, so a volunteer dive team came in the following summer to search the Anacosta River. They found a black plastic bag, but that was all. Then in December 2015, there was a search of a construction site. In 2016, there was a search of the National Arboretum, which is on the opposite side of the Anacosta River from Kenilworth Park. And then in early 2018, a tip came in. It sent authorities to a boat ramp area along the Anacosta River. It's about four miles downriver from where Tatum's body was found. It doesn't appear that this search has yielded any information, but it shows that Relisha's case is still actively being worked on. Besides the searches for Relisha, there have been searches for information. There have been a number of searches on Tatum's electronic communication, cell phones, his locker at work, and even a storage unit he rented for several months before Relisha's disappearance. It's been reported that some letters and pictures have been taken from the storage unit, but any connection to Relisha is unclear. And while we're talking about photographs, we should talk about suspicions that Tatum had groomed Relisha and that he was a pedophile. Police have said that the evidence indicates that Tatum was not heavily involved in child pornography. And I don't know what this means. Not heavily involved. I mean, there's no acceptable level of involvement when we're talking about child pornography. Any child pornography would make me assume he was a pedophile. So are they saying he had some? Are they just poorly wording their answer? I mean, that almost seems like a non-answer to me. I had also expected to find reports of people coming forward to accuse Tatum of abuse after Relisha went missing, and while the investigators were trying to interview families who lived at the shelter, but I couldn't find anything. The footage of Relisha going into the hotel room alone with Tatum is really the closest to evidence we have that abuse was happening. His wife and granddaughter were not with them, so why was he alone in a hotel with her? He had an apartment. Why was he bouncing from the Holiday Inn to the Days Inn and then to the Red Roof Inn? These are questions we don't have a definitive answer to. We can guess, but that's all it is. So what happened to Relisha Rudd? The answer for most people is that Khalil Tatum took her and killed her, that he hid her body and then went back to his daily life with his wife. He didn't even miss a day of work until the day the social worker came to the shelter. When he realised he was about to be found out, he killed his wife and then himself. Why he killed Relisha is unknown. Maybe it was an accident, like he attempted to sedate her and overdosed her. Or maybe there was no accident involved, that she threatened to tell people about the abuse that was happening and he killed her to cover it up. It's interesting to note that Shemeka has defended Tatum in the few interviews she's given. She said she trusted him, that he was a good man and she can't imagine he did anything to Relisha. 
Both Shamika and Melissa have gone as far as to say that perhaps a third party was involved and that Tatum was a murder victim and did not commit suicide. That the third party did something to Relisha, either killed her or took her from Tatum, and everything else was staged to get Tatum and Andrea out of the way and made it look like Tatum was responsible for all of it. Now, that certainly sounds like an internet-bombed conspiracy theory, so it's really unusual that we see the family of the victim putting something like this forward. There is a lot of suspicion on Relisha's family. I've seen really nothing about her father being suspected or being even concerned about where she was, so I'm just going to guess that he probably wasn't in close contact with her at this point. Now, Shamika and Antonio are a different story. Very early on, a grand jury was convened to decide whether or not to charge Shamika with obstruction of justice. I don't think anything came out of this since she hasn't been arrested. Grand juries are not public, so it isn't even clear why this accusation was being leveled. Was it because they thought she lied about Relish's whereabouts or because she resisted the Amber Alert or both or was there more? I mean, I'd really like to know what the grand jury saw. After the disappearance hit the news, people looked on the family's various social media accounts, and I'm going to assume some of us are guilty of that as well. When we see a sensational story hit the news, we look people up. And a lot of people noticed something alarming. Around the time Relisha went missing, her stepfather Antonio was posting pictures on social media of a new phone, new name brand shoes that they had bought for the kids, and even a picture with a fat stack of cash. So the concern was that the couple had actually sold Relisha to Tatum. But the family says the money is easy to explain. Both Antonio and Shamika received Social Security checks, which are, for those outside the U.S., simply put their government benefit checks. It's a little bit more to it than that, but it's a check from the government. There was also a car accident that Shamika had supposedly been in, and she received a settlement from the insurance company. I mean, it seems really coincidental timing that they end up flush with money right around the time Relisha went missing. I mean, obviously, authorities would have looked into this and the source of the money, and they wouldn't have been able to tie it back to Relisha's disappearance, or at least not solidly enough, that they could arrest anyone. Along the lines of Relisha being sold is the idea that Tatum is the one who sold Relisha. This goes two paths, and honestly, both are awful options. One is that he was acting as a procure, or in more common words, he was the pimp, and he accidentally overdosed her. The other option is that he sold her to someone else entirely, and she is still alive, somewhere living as a trafficking victim. The only good of the trafficking angle is the possibility that Relisha is still alive. Her stepfather believes this is the case, and that Shemeka knows where she is. Trafficking is a major issue, and a little girl like Relisha, who bounced between homes so much that she wouldn't be reported missing for quite some time, she would have been vulnerable to this. Traffickers look for the kids who won't be reported missing, like chronic runaways. Andrew, the listener I spoke to, mentioned a youth he knew who was trafficked from a homeless shelter, and she was rescued when she passed a note to a hotel maid. The difference here was that although Relisha bounced from home to home, 
she was active in after-school activities and support programs at the shelter. She had a fairly large family who would eventually have connected the dots, unless, as some suspect, that her family was involved in this entire thing. But maybe they weren't, and Tatum just figured that they would never be able to figure out who had her last, even when she was eventually reported missing. He could just say he dropped her off with one of the various relatives and didn't know what happened after that. So who knows how long Relisha would have been missing before her family reported her. They had managed to put the school off on this for weeks. It is important to note that this trafficking theory isn't a theory from the police investigating the case or the FBI. They have looked into the possibility that she may have been trafficked and they've exhausted every avenue investigating this. They don't believe this is what happened here. My opinion here is that she very likely was not trafficked. This would have been really risky. I wouldn't have expected Tatum, if he was the one who trafficked her, to stay in D.C., keep going to work, and obviously not have a plan as to what would happen after. It seems like he didn't have a plan at all. Now, the family does not believe that Tatum was involved, but I cannot see how he was not. I don't understand how anyone could think that Tatum wasn't somehow involved in this. I do think that it was possibly an accident because he didn't seem to have a plan afterwards. He just kept going to work until he couldn't put it off anymore, and then he disappeared for a little bit before he killed himself. So I don't know. The family's stories are not consistent enough. We don't know what they knew, when they knew it, if they gave her over to Tatum knowing that they weren't going to be getting her back. But I think her death was not planned. Her murder was not planned. But I don't think she's still alive. I don't think she was trafficked and she's going to be rescued one day. I just really hope they could find her because her family members who weren't involved, if any of them were, they're hurting. They want to know what happened to Relisha. And I really hope they can find her. This timeline is just so confusing to me. She was captured on surveillance footage on March 1st, walking into that hotel, and then Tatum is seen the very next day without her, buying those, under the circumstances, questionable items. But we know that he went back to work at that homeless shelter where Shemika was living, and we can go back and forth, maybe their paths didn't cross or whatever, But regardless if they did or didn't see each other, he would have had to have had some kind of story about where Relisha was. And if we're going down the track of Tatum did do something to her, then it's a whole other level of horror that he would go back to the very place he met her and potentially have those conversations with her mother. And then on March 19th, he goes to work knowing someone was going to talk to him, so he leaves early. But why does he then meet his wife in a hotel room? How does that even come to play? There are so many things we don't know here. I mean, were they able to find DNA or bloodstains there? Did they find clothing? But as we've already said in this episode, and we'll say in many episodes to come, that's what happens in an active police investigation. And that's the problem here, because you don't know what you don't know. And so many people will just fill in the gaps on their own. But then what happens is the family fell apart in the aftermath. Shemika and Antonio lost custody of Relish's brothers and they went into foster care. 
Relisha's father was pursuing custody of the oldest son while Antonio and Shemika were trying to get all three of them back. While Shemika, Antonio and Melissa seemed to be on the same side early on, within six months, Melissa and Shemika were pointing fingers at each other in the media. Melissa even accused Shemika of having an intimate relationship with Tatum. At some point, Antonio and Shemika broke up, and then Antonio was part of the finger-pointing. Antonio believed Shemika and Melissa were behind all of this, and they were the reason he couldn't regain custody of his sons. So he went on the Steve Wilkos show, and Steve Wilkos is a spin-off talk show from Jerry Springer. He used to be the security guard on Jerry Springer's show, and he kept the screaming matches on stage from turning into fistfights. Well, he broke up the fights after the cameras caught the best of it. In this episode, which aired October 2017, Melissa and Antonio took lie detector tests about their involvement in Relish's disappearance, but Shamika refused to take the test. We've only been able to find clips online and not the full episode. But from what I've seen, it's a lot of what this talk show is known for. The guests are screaming at each other, the audience is booing, a chair gets tossed, that sort of thing. And Antonio's lie detector test included a question about Relisha's disappearance, a question about if he touched Relisha inappropriately, and also included a question about hitting his children. He passed the test and yelled that he was going to get his kids back. Melissa's polygraph asked her if she had anything to do with Relisha's disappearance and if she gave Relisha to Khalil Tatum. And she said no to both of these. And it was determined that she was telling the truth. I don't think we need to talk about the reliability of polygraphs in this episode, as we seem to cover it in every episode. But let's take a quick second to point out that this is a TV talk show. And it's a talk show that goes right for shock value. And I don't mean a hook like all shows have that get you to watch them. This is shock. We don't know the conditions under which these tests were taken, the background of the person administering the test. And frankly, we don't even know if these were actual test results or just a setup for the host to accuse Shamika of being involved in her daughter's disappearance, because that's exactly what he did next. He got in her face and yelled at her. Because believe it or not, reality TV lies to us. We don't know that these polygraph tests ever happened or that these were the results. Now, I'm not saying the Kardashians are lying, but pretty much all the others. One of the things that stood out to me in this Steve Wilkos show clip, and Charlie, I can't believe you made me watch this, but is that Shemika said she doesn't think Tatum had anything to do with it and she believes someone else killed him because he was shot three times. I can't find any official statement about the number of times he was shot, but it's clear Shemika believes there is a conspiracy theory or else she is just trying to distance Tatum from the disappearance so that it distances herself as well. Another odd thing that came out in the interview with Antonio on this show is that he claimed he saw Tatum the day he found out Relisha was missing on March 19th while the police were at the shelter. He asked Tatum where Relisha was and Tatum said she was with his granddaughter and he was going to bring her back. Antonio went back to the room where the police were and told them what Tatum said. Tatum left and never came back before police could get to him. 
The official timeline is that Tatum left the shelter before the social worker even arrived. But if Tatum was hanging around and confessed to Antonio that he did have Relisha, that would be a huge admission on his part and would clear up some of the questions about Tatum's involvement. Look, this case is difficult to piece together when the stories from the family change from interview to interview. Some of the lying looks like it's clearly an attempt to look better, like Shamika's lying about talking to Relisha on the phone and then changing it to a lie about not having access to a phone. It makes her look like a terrible mother for not calling her daughter. So she may have lied just to look better and not because she knew Relisha was gone. A lot of people and probably everyone listening here are wondering how this could have happened. The shelter has security, it has a curfew, and it even has a room check to make sure that the families are in their rooms at curfew. These rules are designed to keep the family safe. So how did no one in the shelter notice that Relisha was gone for so long? Now, the main thing with the room checks is that at the time, it would be a knock on the door and a verbal okay from the family. So as long as Shamika said, we're all here, they wouldn't know any differently. The new policy at the shelter is a visual check, and that came from Relish's disappearance. Kids are allowed to stay with extended family, but this gives the shelter a chance to make note of where the kids are staying every night, whether in the shelter or with family. And if a child is not with their parents for several nights, they can then look into it. There was a big review of this case, and two dozen recommendations were made for policy changes But we need to be honest here. Would any of those recommendations have actually saved Relisha? If Tatum picked her up on March 1st and then was shopping for a shovel, lime, and trash bags on the 2nd, this wouldn't have saved Relisha. It would have been too late. What would have saved Relisha is a stable parent. And that means we need to go back to Shamika and give her a stable parent. And who knows? Maybe we even need to go back to Melissa and give her one too. We don't know. The foster care system tried to get Shamika that stable force in her life, but her issues were just too deep. Any way we look at this case, the issues are big. We're talking mental health, generational poverty, drug abuse, lack of education, lack of opportunity. These are all converging to make Relisha a very vulnerable, at-risk child. And it opened the door for a man like Tatum or whomever to walk into her life. Relisha's disappearance put a huge spotlight on the issues at the shelter and the conditions there. It is shameful, really, and the city's leaders recognised that. They wanted to move the families into smaller, community-based shelters rather than this one huge shelter and then shut DC General down for good. It has been on the agenda for years, but things are slow to move forward. The six new shelters aren't ready and we see a problem that we see a lot. Residents reading the Washington Post about the issues with the shelter thinking, yeah, we really should do something about that. But when they hear the shelter is going to be in their neighbourhood or the kids are going to be in their kids' schools, all of a sudden they aren't so excited about the change. Not in my backyard is a massive issue, not just in D.C., but really in any city. 
For me, the big issue here is the two and a half weeks from when we can confirm she was last seen to when she was reported missing. I struggle wrapping my head around this part. How can an eight-year-old girl not be seen for so long and no one notice? She missed so much school and no one thought to go out and check to make sure she was okay. I see a lot of similarities here between Amy Fitzpatrick and Relisha. We have two kids that are struggling in their home environment that desperately reach out for help and either people felt helpless or they couldn't or they were limited to what they could do because of red tape. Look, I don't know. But I wish these stories could end differently. I really feel that these kids were let down by a flawed system that really doesn't support families that need supporting and having the best interests of the kids at hand. But it's always that time frame I always come back to, and I think that has so much to do with why we don't know what happened to Relisha Rudd. Relisha Rudd was eight years old when she went missing. She would be turning 13 in a month if she was still alive. Her description at the time she went missing would be useless here. There is an age progression photo that has been recently released. Some argue that they don't think it looks like they would expect Relisha to look. But if you look at any picture of Relisha, she strongly favored Shamika. The resemblance is obvious even in the pictures of Relisha as a very small child. So I think between the age progression and looking at Shamika, we can get an idea of what Relisha would look like if she was alive today. There is a $25,000 reward in the case offered by the FBI. And we cannot forget the victim in the story that often doesn't get the time she deserves. Andrea Tatum was a loving mother and grandmother who overcame years of addiction, only to be murdered on a night when all she wanted to do was go to bed early so she would have the energy for her grandchildren the next day. Because Khalil Tatum was the only suspect in her murder, the case is not being investigated outside of its relation to Relisha. Many wonder if she was murdered because of what she did know or what she found out. Not that she was involved in any way. But she would surely have information on Tatum and even things that seemed benign may have given clues to what was going on when Relisha went missing. And if you have any information related to the Relisha Rudd case, call D.C.'s Metropolitan Police Department at 202-727-9099 or text TIPS to 50411. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Facebook at Insight Podcast, Twitter at Insightful Pod, Instagram at Insight Pod, or email us at insightfulpod at gmail.com. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash insightpod. And a special thank you to Chesgrave Music for our new custom theme.